Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and you're listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 5, the first Kick Aspirational interview. It's with Christoph and Jen Anderson, and I'm so excited about it. Um, last weekend, Sarah and I, we were up in the Napa Valley. Um, this is where, by the way, we lived, got married, had kids, where we spent our first eight years together. And um, it's, we, we're celebrating our 25 uh, years of marriage, our 25th wedding anniversary. And so we, um, we chose to hold the event at Scribe Winery, where our good friends, Christoph and Jen Anderson, are partners. And Christoph is the winemaker. I've known Christoph since we were freshmen at Wheaton College. Um, Christoph and Jen both graduated from that school. If you've heard previous podcasts, you know that I did not graduate from that school. But Christoph and I ended up living in the Napa Valley by accident. And although we chose different paths, I chose them. I really chose Christoph and Jen because of the unconventional way that they've taken to build a life that they wanted together. It's um, very inspiring. Uh, they have a beautiful home. Christoph has seven wines in the Wine Bible, which comes out um, every so often. It's it's a comprehensive overview of the of the most inspiring wines in the world. Uh, so he's uh, in some rare air, and I think as you'll hear, you know, part of the reason he has such a broad spectrum of wines in there is because of his path to get to winemaking, and uh, and that's given him more creativity, more uh, breadth of knowledge, and just a different approach than a traditional uh, winemaker from a traditional region. Um, so. You know, what's what's funny is Sarah and I, we came up to the North Coast after we were at our 25th wedding anniversary with Christoph and Jen and did this interview. And um, so we're up on the, what they call the Lost Coast. It's the North Sonoma Coast of California. We're at Sea Ranch, a place we've been coming together for over 25 years. Her family's been coming for 40 years. Um, and Sarah's dad, Barry Copes, uh, brought up the concept of no regrets. <laughs> and um, it's a popular slogan in parts of the United States. And he, he asked the question, kind of begging the question, what does that really mean? You know, it's kind of a figurative question. It was designed to engage conversation, and we came to our own conclusions. It was, it was a great discussion. But for me, and I think particularly for this podcast, and I think for Christoph and Jen, although they might want to discuss it in more depth, I think the idea of building the life you want which often will be uniquely different for you. I think it has to be. Um, if you do it deliberately, intentionally, and with real depth, the idea of no regrets means doing enough things broadly enough to figure out what the life is you really want, that you have an aptitude to do especially well and earn enough to keep your head above water. You know, it's, it's not no regrets, like you never did anything wrong. I think you'll hear from Christoph and Jen's podcast, maybe they, they did a lot of things wrong. And maybe if he went back, he could have done things you know, more efficiently. Of course, we all could have. Um, but I think the other thing you'll hear is that really what No Regrets is, um, it's about doing enough things to figure out what it is you really want and failing enough times because failure, in my opinion, is the biggest teacher to say, okay, that doesn't work. <laughs> Let's try it another way. Um, so, so that, I think, is what No Regrets means for us and where the value is in that, in that slogan or that saying. You know, I talked about Jim Collins' three spheres earlier um, in my podcast, and it'll come up again, I'm sure. The overlapping Venn diagram of what you're passionate about, what you have a comparative advantage at, you know, what Jim Collins says you can be best in the world at. Um, <laughs> I don't think I can be best in the world at anything, but I like the idea of this comparative advantage. And and then what you can earn enough income doing. Where those three circles intersect is probably where we all ought to focus. The challenge is that it's hard to figure out where that centeredness is. And I think to get it, to really find it, not just to follow a path that'll make you comfortable and not just follow a path that'll give you a good career, but to really follow a path that will 
be fulfilling for you, an individual, a person, not an average, but an individual, the, the, the person you are that you were created to become. In order to find that, you have to try a lot of things. You have to, you have to, you know, you have to look broadly and figure out what you love and what you don't love, and, and not just what makes you comfortable or what might, makes you feel okay, but what really makes you feel fulfilled. What is it that when you're doing it, you can't wait to get up in the morning? And I, what I loved about this this podcast is uh, Christoph and Jen's story, how Christoph first figured out his passion, where his then-girlfriend, now-wife Jennifer, was moving, UC Davis in Davis, California. And then he drew a circle with a 60-mile radius around it, around the thing he was in love with, the person he was in love with, and started thinking about what he could do that he might be able to build a skill set around and earn enough money to be able to be with the one he loved. Now, I don't think any of these interviews or my own story are really prescriptive. I'm not saying that everyone should go do what I did or what Christoph and Jen did. In fact, I should probably say don't do what I did or don't do what Christoph and Jen did. That's not going to be what's right for you. But they're great examples of how people who are committed to deep fulfillment and unconventional pathways can break through barriers in their own lives to build the life they want. This is my first interview, so our mics were a little funky. Um, we'll dial it in better for future episodes, but I hope that you enjoy the content of this interview as much as my wife Sarah and I did, and that it inspires you to engage. This is an interactive project. I do want to hear from you. Send me messages or emails. Um, we have at kickaspirational on Instagram or at david58, D-A-V-E-E-D, 58 on Instagram. You can hit me on DM at either place. You can also hit me on my Facebook account, David Vanderveen on Facebook. You can message me there. Or you can email me, david at kickaspirational.com. Stay in touch. Be a kick aspirational. If I don't get back, hit me on another platform. I swear I'm looking for your content and your comments. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have fun. I'm sitting here in the Napa Valley. I'm with uh, Christoph and Jennifer Anderson. Hello. Hi, David. (laughs) (laughs) Whom I've known, Christoph, I've known you since, what, 1987? Correct, yeah. Wheaton College days. So we've known each other for a long time, since since college, basically. Right. And then we all moved out here to the Napa Valley in the early 90s, 92, 93. Right, exactly. And, Which is an amazing uh, coincidence. I was impressed. When I heard you were mar- getting married, I thought, I have to meet the woman who could tame Dave Anderveen, you know? She's actually here right now. She's sitting in the room with us, still, still taming me 25 years later. And, and of course, I just loved and adored her and, and, and saw why she um, stole your heart. It's and, and, um, and, you know, I've got, I've got to say, he's pr- I'm pretty sure Christoph is the only uh, winemaker to have ever graduated from Wheaton College. You know. Yeah, probably. Yeah, on, on account of that's that's not being too boastful. <laughs> Since you, you're not even allowed to drink there at any time. We decided a contract that we wouldn't drink alcohol there. The, the pledge. You're, I don't know if your your listeners know about the Wheaton pledge. You had I to mentioned it briefly yeah, yeah, okay. in the pilot episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we can get into some of that. I think uh, just to finish the introduction, so you guys have you you own a part of a very successful new winery uh, that's very popular with young people in the in the southern end of Carneros. You're GM at a uh, one of the better received wineries in, is it in Yountville or? Oakville. Uh, Oakville. Oakville. Um, we're not going to name names. You can look up Christoph's uh, wine legacy if you'd like. But um, so you've, you've done a lot of really interesting things. You've got a breadth of wine that you make, which is very unusual for winemakers in the Napa Valley. Let's go back. So now let's get back to um, to, to, the, to where we met, Wheaton College and, and 
getting a liberal arts education. What did you guys study when you were in school? I started out as pre-med. Um, that's the reason why I went back to Wheaton, because it just had such an amazing program uh, for acceptance into medical school and wanted to be a cardiologist. Um, and after finishing the first two years, which are kind of the toughest years of pre-med, you know, once you're in your junior year, you're kind of set. It was right around that junior year, I was like, I just didn't really see myself sitting in a, in a hospital um, doing something that I, I really felt like I would enjoy doing. And I also kind of had this sense, I learned about my personality that I didn't know that I was really going to have the wherewithal to sti stick with that much education for another 10 years, you know, to after be college. after yeah. college to actually be able to do that. I just kind of realized, I, I mean, the trade and the job was something I definitely could do and would, would have been very uh, successful at. Um, but I just realized what I eventually found out about myself is I need to be outside. Um, and that's kind of part of why I became a winemaker uh, is realizing once I had been working at wineries for multiple years that, you know, this was, part of what clicked uh, with this job is I get to be outside and c get to connect with nature, get to be, a, you know, in touch with the seasons. Um, and so it just was something that uh, wasn't, and something I intended to do at all. Um, you know, I came out here because, not because I was following you, but because I was following Jennifer. She had, <laughs> Way better person to follow. Right? Yeah. And uh, she had been accepted to UC Davis grad school. And so I literally drew a one hour commute around UC Davis. What could I do in that area? And uh, had grown up with uh, my, my father's best friend had started a winery up here. So I knew the area. Um, called him up. He didn't have a job, but he recommended somebody else who might. They didn't have a job, but they rec And so it just kind of snowballed from there um, of getting a job at a winery um, because I was very educate highly educated with that liberal arts um, background. You know, I was able to learn and pick up things uh, really quickly, and that's why I'm a big believer, and Jennifer is too, in, in the liberal arts education because, you know, I guess the cliche is I learned how to learn um, and other than some of the basics of chemistry and, and microbiology, uh, you know, I don't use any of the things that I learned in college in my career, um, but, I, but I learned how to learn and, and um, how to focus, and I also learned how to absorb lots of different input and stimuli and, and be able to process that and distill it into, okay, this needs to get done, or this is the urgent factor, or... Sure. I mean, it's, it's kind of right, so liberal arts comes out of the Greek tradition, which is to free your mind. And Thomas Jefferson kind of recreated it in America to make better citizens, and that's right with UVA. Um, and it created, it spawned a whole category of education that doesn't really teach you specific job techniques, but it helps you think about how to learn, uh, how to learn for, for whatever you do in life. What was your actual, what were your, both of your degrees actually in? Christoph, um, if I can speak for you for a moment as, 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 a spouse <laughs> as, as your spouse, yeah. um, when I met him, I think you were you were technically an economics major. I don't I, I don't remember you ever going to class. Um, you were always <laughs> in the art building, and that's what your your true passion was, and photography and film. And um, before you followed me to Davis and Napa area, you you really passionately wanted to become uh, either a filmmaker to do something in in film. And I remember that was a period of frustration, how difficult it was to break in to to Hollywood. And um, 
so any my, my point is economics which you hated was your major art which you loved was your minor uh, came to Napa and I remember I remember a dinner with Dave and Sarah when we were still you know kids in our 20s and they had this do you remember um, um, Myers-Briggs book like please oh, yeah. understand me and like yeah. we're flipping through this book and to me it was like this weird voodoo thing like oh are you you're introverted you're extroverted you're sensory <laughs> or you're abstract what what are you but um I remember Christoph kind of like realizing that he was someone who um was was quiet and sensitive creative needed to work with his hands needed to be outdoors so it's, it was just like this process of figuring out I think you, 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 you could have been a great filmmaker because you love um tools, instruments, um, you're artistic, but you also have an analytical side. And, and so I think each, each one of us could end up doing myriad different things, but if you can figure out your personality and what you love, that's, that's a key. Um, so, um, yeah, so. Yeah, and then and then big part of that too is just allowing a little bit of serendipity to come into it as well. And serendipity, um, right. Because yeah, I would have never intended to become a Napa Valley winemaker. Um, but It having, suits you. But it suits me you know, as well as probably anything can. Well, isn't it kind of funny? You think about, like you, you said, Jen, you know, how hard it is to break into Hollywood, you know, as if there's like a vault you have to get into. But it, it is difficult to break into an, 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 an industry where, you know, there's a lot of interest, mm -hmm. but not always a lot of work. Um, Christoph, you didn't have any background in winemaking per se. You had a, friend, a father's friend who was involved in it, and you were looking, you were trying to figure out your aptitudes and your skill sets in a place near your girlfriend, and you said, boom, let's, let's go try and get into the wine industry. Do you think breaking into the wine industry is easier or harder than breaking into entertainment? It's, it's maybe harder, it's definitely as hard, and so yeah, it's almost ironic that I ended up becoming a winemaker, which, you know, <laughs> there's so many people that want to have my, my job and my career, um, because in a way it is, it is uh, iconic and, are, and it's also so small. I mean, there's so few winemakers in, the, in right? the world and it's a lifestyle. Um, but I think it's, you know, a reason why I, I didn't become a filmmaker, which I, yeah, I could have been very successful doing that as well. But somehow this ended up being really the, the lifestyle and the career. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to do the chat with Jennifer because you know it's been all a lot about our two kids too and this is like a place to raise them um, an amazing community and lifestyle um, and that's just been an extension of how then we've developed our house and how we've developed our, our company and our brands um, to fit our family lifestyle so unlike a lot of winemakers I don't do a lot of traveling to sell the brands um, and I've just been able to somewhat shape my career that I'm I'm home a lot and get to be available for for my kids and my family more than more than a lot of winemakers so you really created a life not necessarily a lifestyle or even a job or career path you, you created a world that you that you and your family inhabit and you did it together um, I, I you know Christoph is the name on a lot of the winemaking labels but Jen you're an equal part in shaping that life um, be between your partnership and the businesses, between the kids that you raised together. Um, if you don't sure. mind, Jen, I'd love to ask you and get some of this because this is one of the most remarkable writing exercises I've ever seen. You got you went into like a, a fine arts program at UC Davis, right? Um, so I was an English major 
at Wheaton College. It was a very old-fashioned, as I was saying, very rigorous um, education, and it, it, it was different because um, the, the, the trendy um, liter literary theories of the day hadn't quite made their way there, you know, the, uh, the Marxism and the feminism, but in a way it was really cool because you could read Shakespeare, uh, a close reading, and um, very rigorous and and I did very well on my GREs and uh, but I want um, just re read it line by line uh, look at the historical meaning but you don't have to think of it in very narrow and reductive terms like only a feminist reading or, or for only example a only a Marxist reading which was going on in the Ivy Leagues at the time so I think I was actually I mean it was it was beneficial to be there um, it was an excellent education I wanted to be a writer which is a crazy thing to do wanting to be a winemaker also an insane thing to do <laughs> just just no you know it's it's impractical you're you're not gonna make any money you're gonna struggle um, along the way and uh, so so at that point so, so you guys, just for clarity for the listeners mm -hmm. so you went from an education that prepares you for no job exactly into uh, career paths that are almost impossible to make yes money. yes okay. and we were young and idealistic and we didn't care we weren't thinking in terms of 401k plans or you know right, economic right. stability we were just kind of like a little bit of rebels and punks and giving the middle finger to a convention a little bit because you can do that when you're young yeah. um, we didn't necessarily care about making money uh, so I went to an MF uh, or an M master um, program in fiction writing at um, at UC Davis, and um, you know Christoph's insane for wanting to be a winemaker. I'll just tell you that right now. He won't. He won't tell you. But um, it was a long and difficult road. Yeah. And and people people have this idea that it's glamorous, um, that it's like uh, you're riding on horseback in a vineyard smoking cigars, and that's not how it was what? at all. What? And, and, and in, in particular because um, he chose um, not to go and get a master's degree at UC Davis uh, in enology. Because and that, UC Davis, you were there for an MFA in right. writing. So it's like you get a master's degree if this is what you want to do. But it's because it, it's literally. Yeah. I mean, that's the place. It's the place to go. But it's the the place to get right. a, a degree to make wine. Right. Uh, I don't know if they actually have an enology degree, but it's basically a, a wine-making degree. That's where you go for a master's, right? Yeah, right. either either enology or viticulture, you usually choose one of the two disciplines. So this very much deeply pissed me off that he didn't he want to. He chose not to get that He degree. chose not to do it because he wanted to uh, work his way up from the cellar and work in a hands-on way. And he just decided that he's more of a self-taught learner and didn't want to go back to school. So what that basically meant was, and this is during that period of time when we knew you and we were we were newly married, that basically meant that he was working like minimum wage jobs with right. with no uh, health insurance, so no no benefits. In, actually, in the vineyards or actually working. Actually, in, in the you're cleaning, you're cleaning shit <laughs> like with, <laughs> with bleach, and it's dangerous work. And you know he he won't tell you this, but I mean he he's had numerous uh, close close calls. People people die every every harvest. No one wants to talk about this, but just CO2 inhalation, or you're, you've been inside, um, um, and you're, you're working like 12, 17-hour days, too, during crush. It's, right. it's, it's agricultural. A lot of people don't understand the harvest. Yeah, yeah. So to this, to this day, every harvest, he works 
for four months without a day off, which is, if you're an entrepreneur, that's, yeah, that's maybe that's the norm, but it's an agrarian, you know, agrarian job. So, <laughs> Crush, by the way, that's that's the fall in the Napa Valley. Right. Late summer and early fall. When, when the grapes are come out. Harvesting all the grapes when they come up, right? Yeah, and there's kind of that unfortunate cliche term is, is there, Jennifer almost became the crushed widow. So it's called the <laughs> crushed widow because you don't see your you, spouse. You don't see your spouse. Uh, during that period of time. But then one of the things I was going to mention, too, is I did have that. The, one of the other reasons I didn't f- pursue that UC Davis graduate program was, especially at that time, I really had no idea that becoming a winemaker was what I wanted to do. In fact, I remember a discussion with you, David, in a in a jacuzzi after we were, we, we had we had both been working in the wine industry, and I told you I was like, "There's no way I want to become a winemaker." Because it's a crazy job. You have to work so hard. It will take me forever to become a winemaker, and you don't get paid enough. And so I told you I didn't want to become a winemaker. That's funny. And yet that's what I've ended up becoming um, because I just couldn't stop uh, because it did end up being perfect for my personality and perfect for our family. It's the right Um, thing to do, even though it didn't look good on a piece of paper. Yeah, and if I was going to do it all over again, you know, I would have gotten that UC Davis degree and we wouldn't have had those tough 10 years no 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 what I want to say is you (laughs) you are and I realize this now um, and I take back what what I said was many years ago um, when I used to hound you to to get your degree you're a much better winemaker now because you did it um, um, your own way in a different way and 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 in in the uh, during you know during this period of time you have gone back to UC Davis and you know probably taken enough uh, coursework to to fulfill a degree requirement but so there's there are a lot of good reasons to get it if you want to be a winemaker to get a degree at UC Davis the way that you did it wasn't getting that degree and it took 10 years it for him longer. to become a winemaker and give you a bigger breadth of did it yeah. well, I'm asking did it, did it create a bigger breadth or a bigger better understanding of winemaking because you didn't do it that way yeah, for sure. And so I don't regret the journey at all, though it's definitely harder than if we had started with intent at the beginning. Um, so the journey itself has defined me as a person and also my, my wine styles. Uh, and so it's one of the things I work with uh, with my various projects is to some degree I, I almost have to unlearn um, some of the folks that I'm working with. Of They've learned such a technical component of winemaking that they don't have what I feel like, you know, not only my journey, but just the 25 years of experiences, you know, I'm bringing them that breadth of experience, that broad range versus just what you can learn in books and just what you've learned from the magazines. And that's true with any career, but, but winemaking, having that sense of, you know, not only is it science and chemistry, but it's also, it's a very organic product. It's not something we can control. We can't just go out and buy the most amazing ingredients and make a certain style wine. Um, it's not like making energy drinks. It's not like <laughs> making energy drinks. Or, or There's no not, recipe. It's, 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 it's not making a widget, you know, is what I, you know, we're not making a widget, but, but we are, especially with the wines that Jennifer and I are working with, you know, we either are working with clients who own the vineyards or we, we certainly aren't just buying grapes or we aren't just buying juice. Sure. Um, so we're you're building these wineries from the ground up from the ground up and and that's also a big part of the creative process too and it's sometimes the frustrating part and sometimes the scary part is you know we're not just coming in and and doing uh, the normal job itself it's it's creating um, you know the the term is maybe the brand but uh, I don't like that because it's a little bit overly reductive you know we're creating things from the ground up 
um, which in some ways is literally true, where we're choosing a vineyard and deciding what kind of vines and what kind of varietals uh, to be able to start from the very beginning. And, and that's, again, going back to something you can't learn uh, at school, but you need that schooling background, those technical pieces of expertise to be able to take it to the next level. And, Put it together. Yes. And, and I mean, I, I, I hear you on the reductionist issues with branding um, because a lot of branding is cheap. Um, I just answered it. My last podcast was about building authentic brands. It was a, a series mm. of questions that I had to answer for a drug selling um, publication. Um, but I, I think, you know, when you think about the Napa Valley, Robert Mondavi was one of the first people to build like a, a brand that was built around the valley, not just around a wine that was being made here, right? When you bought him, he would tell stories about the valley and exactly, he yeah. would buy his brand because of it, right? Yeah, exactly, totally. I mean, he was one of the original or the greatest ambassador of Napa Valley and, and even California wines. Right. right, and if, you know, if I think about the, the life you guys have together, it started in a way, you, you made a decision, Jen, to go to UC Davis to get your MFA in writing because that's, that's what you were doing. Yeah, it's a passion, it's that follow your bliss. And then Christoph decided, because he was following a person, you, mm -hmm. that he needed to find a place where he could figure out what his thing was going to be. And I think it's interesting, that's where your journey kind of started here. Mm -hmm. um, I had gotten here a little bit ahead of you, but really kind of disconnected from each other. Even though we've been friends in college, we hadn't really, we, we weren't following each other here. Yeah, I think we almost literally ran into each other on the street. <laughs> exactly. It was like completely arbitrary. Right. And I came out here to work at a laboratory, ETS Labs, and I was very lucky to work with Gordon Burns and Marjorie Burns, who were doing really a lot of breakthrough wine technologies and analysis, working with UC Davis. Um, I was not doing the technical work. I was helping them with marketing and some office, you know, running the office and running the business a little bit. Um, and then, Christoph, you also worked at ETS. Yeah, I mean... I have you to blame sometimes for, <laughs> for that job. I mean, you, 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 you know, that was, you were my intro there and that was essentially what became my UC Davis degree was, you know, having that technical experience for three years. Um, and, uh, that was, that was a great place to learn because like you say, there was a lot of groundbreaking, breaking analysis and I, as a wine, you know, not even a budding winemaker at that point, but I got to meet and see a lot of the problem, quote unquote, wines that other winemakers had. Right. And so it was a great way to get to, to see a lot of inside uh, wines and challenges that, that winemakers had and uh, come up with the practical ways of diagnosing, diagnosing what we can do and, and um, I mean, how much to fix every, a wine. Yeah, I mean, pretty much every brand in the Napa Valley, every winery or winemaker is coming in or out of ETS at some point. Exactly. And yeah. it's almost like, I mean, you get this, you get thrust into this place where you get to see behind the veil, of, you get to see everybody's back end, you know, for good or ill. Um, a lot of times for, you know, when somebody has a problem is what you're trying to diagnose and fix and solve with them. So it kind of gives you a tremendous amount of information and learning that even if you were in a college program, you wouldn't necessarily get, particularly not hands-on. Um, so I mean, I, I'm not saying ETS did everything for you, but I think I think you and I both benefited from, from being able to see that. And I think when we were sitting in that hot tub, um, that's where we were probably both saying, boy, being a winemaker is not an easy life. Yeah, yeah, we, we kind of knew too much about what the, yeah. <laughs> the real job actually was. But, you know, lo and behold, I couldn't stay away, and I stuck so, with it. Sucked you back in. No, but, and, and, and I guess part of the reason I wanted to do this is we were at your home last night. We had, you were very gracious to host a party for Sarah and I and a lot of our family It was our friends. pleasure. 
Um, and it was ours too. <laughs> and, and, but I was just, you know, we saw the home you bought in, in is it Browns Valley? Browns Valley area, in Browns sure. Valley area, so Southern Napa. We saw the home when you bought it, and it was, uh, I think, oh, early you, on. you did? You saw, it was a teardown. Yeah. You saw the teardown. I think so. Sarah, we saw it when it was in, it was in pretty process. Rough. It was pretty yeah, I rough. I probably recognize it now. Yeah, it was a, it was a kind of a crummy little ranch house when you bought it. Right? Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Tear down, for, as you say. The, the sellers asked if they should bother cleaning the kitchen because it was a tear down, and we said, oh, yes, please, we will be living here. And, <laughs> and, and, and indeed, we did. We lived there for probably a good 12, 14 years before we were able to remodel it. We raised kids there, you know, with the, the uneven deck with the nails sticking out and the kids run and they, you know, skin their toes and um, the the yard. I mean, we had we had some marital friction over this fixer-upper. Well, it, oh, it's for not sure. small either. It's an acre. It's an acre. It's a lot in California. Christoph's very passionate about soil quality. You know, if you want to get really geeky about soil quality. Right. So for probably a good 10 years there, um, I was really bitter. I had um, I had grass envy. I had lawn envy. Because he kept, he, he kept planting cover crops and then like... Um, um, Tilling it, back in. tilling it back into the soil <laughs> back to dirt so we had like waves we had like ocean waves of hard baked mud and i had little kids who wanted to go out and play and, and yeah i mean it's a great place to to raise kids it's safe here in, in, in nature the deer the you know it's 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 very beautiful but um it was not an easy place in some ways in some ways i think it was pretty great too though i mean again there are these fortuitous aspects to life it changed the way i parented um, I let my kids make messes, and, and, and that was important. I think if I'd had a tidier, cleaner house, maybe I wouldn't have said, yeah, go ahead, um, you know, finger paint on the, the kitchen floor. This linoleum never looks clean, even if I scrub it, so make a mess. And that kind of became part of my, um, my parenting philosophy. Some kind of unconventional. Unconventional. Unconventional living in an unconventional <laughs> home, and unconventional children. And uh, got two girls, by the way, right? Yeah, and letting yeah. them maximize that, too. So, you know, they would make these crazy, and they still do crazy tree forts and... You know, we did encourage them to, you know, explore every inch of that entire acre. Um, but yeah, it was way more project than, than I anticipated. And if I had known then, I probably wouldn't have tried it. But I'm glad we ended up doing it. So uh, to me, there's echoes there of even the, my winemaking career of if I knew what it was going to take, would I have chosen to do it? No. Same thing with our house. Same thing with a lot of things. But, you know, you stick with it. But would you change anything today? Would I change anything? Well, well like, I, I always think I, I have some similarities in my own background where the journey sometimes, if you look back, can be a little bit tiring. You're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? You know, you know we, Sarah and I had quite a few roller coaster rides in our career. As Sarah likes to say, it was never boring. Right? <laughs> it doesn't always mean it was uh, exciting in a great way either. But the, um, I, I guess my question is, you know, given where you are today, and it's okay if, if you would have changed things. I, it just seems like you've created this world you inhabit that's uniquely shaped for your lives. Um, would you have changed stuff about what you did? I wouldn't have changed, you know, part of it's been the journey. I think the one thing I look back at over the last whatever the X period of time when you want to choose, 10 years, is I allowed um, the stress and the um, just the busyness of daily life end up changing me for a period of time where I became somebody who I actually wasn't. Um, and I would come home and I wouldn't be the normal 
happy Kristoff um, just because you know we did have such a stressful life we had so many different career going on so many different uh, companies I was working for I was working for way too many hours uh, and I allowed myself to slip into this place I don't know was it years where I was just working all the time and I felt like it was uh, successful because the kids were running around our acre and you know as a family we were clicking and doing really well but I realized that uh, that 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 amount of stress uh, had just kind of changed me uh, and made me a little bit more detached and something happened I don't even know specifically what it was about two years ago where I just kind of had a conscious decision I was like I realized that I was turning into somebody who I was not and I don't know it's been about two years now of um, how did you realize that uh, what was the awareness that happened did Jen did you say something to her or was there something internally that snapped or a combination of things I, I think you know Partly, it was just the evolution of the marriage, too. And we had some conversations where all of a sudden he realized that I wasn't happy and I'd put my, my, my career and my intellectual and creative aspirations on hold. Don't regret that. Uh, I, I made a, a choice to give everything to, to parenting and to, the, to our home life. Um, but I think it was a shock to him that I wasn't um, fulfilled and that maybe I resented um, some of his career perks or just the amount of time he spent um, on various clients. Um, uh, I, I wanted him to work smarter, not harder, you know, and, and um, he had, you know, maybe too many clients and clients that didn't make sense where you, where you spend a lot of time driving to a client. And clients, and, by the way, so you were doing consulting while making? Consulting. Yeah, right. I still mean, do. You know, I work with multiple multiple brands, so um, just kind of help incubate what they do. Uh, ideally, all the way from vineyard all the way through winemaking and establishing the brand and, and what kind of label it's going to be. Uh, and so, consulting in in our industry is different than consulting connotates in a lot of other industries, uh, where it's almost like we're we're the movie director. Um, you know, because we're the winemaker has the creative input as well as then the technical for for viticulture, and so consulting uh, the way the way we do it with our our company is uh, kind of offer you know from the beginning cradle through all the way into the bottle, uh, consulting and helping them learn how to make a wine and, and how to even start that whole process themselves. So you're doing that for a number of people. Yeah, and I was like almost creatively possessed and so that was where it was just hard to say no to uh, you know this really fun and exciting project over here or this really fun exciting wine over there and as a creative person I just ended up having so many of these projects going on um, that yeah the driving distance too was a big part of it. Uh, you had to be more selective about what you were going to say yes to. I wanted you to prioritize. There was a harvest when you were going from Calistoga to Oakville, to Carneros, and back to Calistoga, and I would worry so that you would... So it's the north end of the Napa Valley to the south end so of the Napa So how many Valley. miles might that be in, in a day? Yeah, I mean, um, I, yeah, I was driving, you know, I was spending three hours driving around from I wanted vineyards you to vineyard, vineyard, vineyard. To prioritize, and meanwhile, we'd started our own 
super tiny, like ultra premium Cabernet Dream brand when um, when I was actually pregnant with our first child, and yet we never sold, we weren't selling it, and I was starting to get testy about that. Like we, you still we, have some of this wine, right? And, and we. The beautiful thing is we've kept this amazing wine in storage, and it, it's, we will sell no more wine before it's time, you know? <laughs> this is, this is can we say the name of the band? Sure. So this is Pella. This is Pella Cabernet, and so um, my insight would be never name a wine label after your child, because A, they hate it, and then <laughs> B, they will probably um, become non-binary and change their name at some point. So now so. we're calling Pella Ray. No, so no Pella's Ray and, okay. and, and uh, despises and the label. We, and then we also make a wine, uh, Sauna Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> right, for so the second one. She seems pretty cheerful about Sauna Sauvignon Blanc. She is, although when we first talked about it at the dinner table and she was, I don't know, all of four years old, uh, and uh, it, we were talking about Pella wine at that point, and this little four-year-old daughter here in, in Napa um, said, yeah, maybe it's time for me to have my own wine. And I said, oh, it's kind of funny, Sana, because I was going to just talk to mom about maybe starting a Sauvignon Blanc named after you. And she's like, no, Dad, I don't want a white wine. And so <laughs> at, at four years old, she knows. I love the Sauvignon Blanc. And, <laughs> Thank yeah, you. I love them both. At four years old, you know, out of the out of the mouth of babes, you know, she knows that red wine's way cooler than white wine. And, you know, Sauvignon Blanc's a white wine. So... <laughs> We decided not to make a Sauvignon Blanc uh, that year, but the, by the next year she had turned around. It's like, yeah. So yeah, we, now we have two wines named after our kids, and uh, there and is Ray has dark hair, the Pella Pella brand, and that's a red wine. Mm-hmm. And Sana has blonde hair, and that's a white wine. Is there any connection to that? I mean, that would have to be on a on a universe level. Uh, <laughs> our, our our branding is not that uh, specific to. Uh, you know, but David has a point because actually Ray's hair is uh, dark blue. I mean, I think naturally it, it would be blonde, but uh, she's the serious, brooding one, and then the sunny, happy one, the chill one is you know a chilled wine. So it's 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 amazing how brands work. Sometimes you can't stop the connectivity. Yes, oh. I don't know. But I am, I'm proud of Christoph because he's, in an oppressive way, he's working very efficiently. He usually gets up at 3 in the morning, he walks the dog, goes to the gym. He starts his day early and gets a lot done before he's harassed by the phone calls and emails and so forth. You make a point now to be home at 3, you know, to pick up the kids from school, um, to spend time with the kids. And um, I think also your your release or your relief used to be our yard, our fixer-upper, and I think you scaled that back to investing your, your time in um, the relationships. and Yeah, it's just, you know, spending more time enjoying that which we have created, so, you know, what changed from a few years ago where I was so stressed out I was a different person, it hasn't been anything other than, uh, you know, intent, really, of just, because we have equal amount of stress, we have maybe even more stress now than we did two years ago but I don't let it affect me the way it did back then but also maybe going to the gym and losing 30 pounds and like all those different things starting to meditate more uh, and being take better care of myself um, has then I think diffused into that kind of outlook and then as that's happened then the the clients and the projects including our own have come together so much more harmoniously and, and just kind of works better even though uh, the the workload and the stress is maybe even the same. So there's, there's this whole element that I like to talk about in this podcast that I think if we're going to create lives that we enjoy and inhabit, 
that something has to happen deliberately, that you have to intentionally, because it's easy, the more successful we become, the easier it is to become overwhelmed. Um, you know, I have this as well. Sarah has to sometimes tell me not another trip, right? Because we have all these markets that we work with. And I think um, to your point, Christoph and Jen, you've both given up things in order to have what you really want because you, it's not possible for humans to have everything, as good as it sounds. Um, Jen, you were just, you know, I, I asked you if it was okay to talk about this because I think you, know, you sure. had mentioned that, that you gave up your passion, one of your passions, for a bigger passion for your kids, which is, and for your building this family together for a time. But before you had kids, so you got an MFA at Davis. Right. And then you started really seriously getting into creative writing. And specifically, because I've never heard or seen of anyone doing do this before, and you did this and we, we watched you do it. And, and I literally, I was, let's just say I was questioning the decision process when you were doing this, <laughs> but I thought it was also really awesome. Um, you decided you wanted to, am I getting this right? So I'm going to say this, you can correct me, please correct me. You decided you want to write about police work. I want to write about police work. So you joined the police academy and actually right. became a police officer and then got a job here in the Napa Valley as a police officer. I got a job in St. Helena, um, which is very small, you know, tiny valley. jewel in yeah. up, up Valley. And you know what, you guys could take some credit for this too, because you used to think that the police blotter was so funny. I mean, it was a source of humor. I still love reading police blotters. Same in Laguna. It's unbelievable. The police blotter was hilarious. I never found out who wrote it, but I mean, it was just comic. Police called for, uh, you know. Squ rabbit squirrel. Rabbit yeah. squirrel. Yeah, squirrel uh, <laughs> left premises, uh, you know. It, it was so funny. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think the more underlying issue was just realizing that I was a 20-something kid from a sheltered life and I wanted to write but um, didn't maybe know who I was yet, didn't have something to write about yet. So I decided to go out and artificially manufacture um, an adventure for myself in some sense. But I think I was also trying well, I'd, I'd like to, to, I'd like to... Yeah. I mean, if you're joining a police academy and becoming a police officer, you may be manufacturing it, but I don't think that's artificial. Or, or do you think it is artificial? Artificial in the sense that I had no, looking back on it, authentic desire to be a police officer, nor did I have the skill set or the personality type. In fact, my personality type would pretty much be the opposite right. no, of a police if, if, officer. If I can interject here, mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you haven't mentioned, um, I think you were a model, is that right? Well, you were a hand model. Well, yeah. Yeah, well I was, yes. Um, I was a I was a Vidal Sassoon uh, hair model in Chicago model. and yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, but you were you're statuesque, you're model, gorgeous. I mean, oh, you're I'm, sweet. I'm obviously, attracted Christoph to you among many other qualities. Intelligence, creativity. Yeah, oh, this is kindness. nice. Thank you. Keep going. But yeah, don't stop. Don't stop. But the I think the you know what struck me as funny is I also think you you're you're a quieter personality. You're not like when I think of police, I typically think of you know, and maybe it's a little bit negative, but some police come across as bullies, right? Like they're trying to force themselves on you or trying to interject themselves in your life because it's the nature of the work sometimes. Um, sorry to any police officers who think that's uh, not, not such a nice way to say it. Um, but I guess my point is you're a quiet, tall, beautiful woman who's slightly introverted. Can I say that? Super introverted. Super introverted. Right. Introspective. Sensitive. Well-educated. <laughs> and then you decide after an MFA in writing to join the local police force. I mean, to go through a police academy, which is not easy, 
and then become a local police officer. That just seemed to me, that was like, okay, Christoph's crazy to become a winemaker, you're even crazier to do. <laughs> no, I'm joking, but, but I just thought it was such a, I mean, in one, on one hand, I was like, that's so wild and crazy, but on the, other, on the other hand, I was like, that's also so amazing that she's willing to do this for her craft, right? That you're willing to go, go on this journey to create, to generate content that you can write about. So you ended up working in the, in the St. Helena Police Department, and then you wrote a short story that won a pretty big award. What did it won what best mystery? Uh, I uh, wrote a story that was picked up in the anthology Best American Mystery Stories. I think that was 2000 or 2001. I can't even remember now. Um, and that was a big deal for me as a young writer. Um, I look back on that experience as one of just accelerated learning by doing stupid things you know so I, I'm a big believer in making mistakes to learn sure. and and everyone in my life was saying really doubting whether I, I, I wanted to be a police officer and at the time I really believed I did and yeah I have the exact wrong personality for that I'm not an authoritarian person I hate conflict I hate confrontation um, I'm very poor at noticing concrete details like expired reg tabs and so much of the humor in the story came from that because I'm an intellectual person but um, I would have difficulty understanding that uh, you know um, that my tool belt my, my gun belt was pressing against the um, the button in the car to move the seat forward or you know, little, 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 little things like that. Um, or uh, getting lost in the mega city of St. Helena. <laughs> I also have a very poor sense of direction. So, <laughs> so you are, you, but you actually became a cop and you write this story, you win this award and, and it doesn't doesn't paint the most complimentary picture of the St. Helena Police Department. It's not terrible, but it's, there's, a, there's, there's some funny characters that you, you're not afraid to talk about. There's some funny old-timer characters, but honestly, I come away with that with respect for police officers and the very specific personality type um, and, the, and the skills, and it gave me more of a sense of um, appreciation for the different skills that different people have. And, and again, sure. we talked about personality typing. So I learned a lot, I think, about um, that, that aspect of, of personality. And again, it was a quest, who am I? What am I doing at, at the time? Then a after the story was published, um, I actually got a, a fellowship to Stanford called the Stegner Fellowship. It was a, a two-year fellowship, and it was an amazing a blessing in a sense because... A lot of famous writers have been Stegner Fellows, right? Ken right. Kesey and a lot of... Right, right. Yeah. And basically, they pay you a small. They pay you to go to Stanford, a small stipend. This blew my mind um, to have that that rich experience. So for two years, I was able to workshop stories, and um, at the same time, I I wanted to start a family, and so our first child was born during my second year, and a whole new adventure came about she was uh, she was colicky she screamed around the clock you know we would uh, Christoph and I would I mean, you talk about the stressful times in your life but they're also the times that make you authentically who you are as a human being so a whole new um, a whole new period of, of research and using my critical thinking skills from you know you're we talking about liberal arts um, was was about to um, to begin because now I had to figure out like what causes colic. Why is this child screaming for eight hours every evening? Yeah. And 
for you an know, entire people year. People still don't really have a very good answer. That the, you know, the pediatrician would say, "Well, here's some lavender scented lotion." It was like no help at all. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, I was one of those moms. I was one of those moms. The moms that would go in and like question, like, "Do I really need to give every one of these immunizations?" And according to this schedule, and, and uh, probably poured my my intellectual ability into um, not overparenting. But um, thoughtfully parenting and challenging um, some of the conventions, intentionally parent, parenting. parenting. Right. And now I have um, an enormous pleasure. I think, um, gosh, it pays off. The hard work pays off because I adore more than anything having conversations with my 15-year-old. We can discuss um, in, in great depth um, all sorts of things. I know you, you were you were talking about Ray, uh, talking with Ray about her. Um, her college class in horror film, but you, you can talk with, with her um, so intelligently. And so that's the great pleasure for me, was that that time was not um, poorly invested. Right, no, and I think, look, your kids have t are turning out wonderfully, um, exploring who they are, uh, defining who they are in their own terms, because I think you've exhibited unconventional living, creating the world you want, and, and basically, learning by doing. I mean, Ray now is, uh, I noticed she's into graffiti um, because the tree houses in your backyard uh, have been graffiti or have been doing, uh, what do you call it? Is it graffiti or is it? Uh, it looks like graffiti to me, David, but <laughs> as long as it's in my backyard, that's a lot better than uh, underneath, some, well. underneath some bridges. Yeah, yeah no, but it's, she does a great job and it was, it was fun to be welcomed to your home by one of her pieces of, of art last night. Um, and I think it's—I think that's what kids should be doing at that age. They should be just like you were, and just like we were, discovering who you are by trying and doing, and and then intentionally, you know, reflecting and saying, "Okay, am I doing this right? Can I do this better? Am I creating the world I want, or am I creating a world that maybe is is in the direction I want to go? But maybe I need to scale some things back and reinvest in other places to really make this what I'd like to have." Is that? I mean, so so you decided, for example, Jen, hey, writing is what you're. Your passion is. You're great at it. You've been recognized by your peers and by, by the by the creative writing world for your work. I mean, you've won awards. You've been a Stegner Fellow. You've gotten an MFA. You've you've published. That's rare air in creative writing. Um, Christoph, you've done the same thing in winemaking. Where, let's talk about this a little bit. So, Jen, you scaled back because you wanted to have a family and, and intentionally be a parent, deliberately be a parent, and create a family that right that fit the world that you guys want together. Um, Christoph, you've, you've been a consulting winemaker, and then recently, or fairly recently, in the last, well, the last five, 10 years, you, you guys crafted kind of an opportunity to own a piece of a winery where you're a winemaker, but you also, you're also partners while you're doing these other things, is that right? Right, yeah, exactly. How did that come about? You know, it was just one of those things that comes together in life of uh, I was working with a vineyard manager who liked my work style and liked my wine style. Uh, he recognized a piece of property that I thought would be um, great to develop from the bare ground and turned into a, into wine. Uh, so we met up with some investors and, and brought that together and it was just, you know, another, another project they were able to incubate from the beginning, but it was, uh, you know, Going back to intent, I mean, we didn't intend to do it that way, um, but it came together because uh, people recognized uh, uh, my skills and my abilities and Jennifer and I's and our family's approach to life. So, uh, you know, it was, it was partly luck, but it was also, 
and being the right place at the right time, but it's being the right person and being prepared. Uh, it wasn't purely just luck. It was, you know, having that skill set, having that background that Jennifer mentioned of how we had developed um, and how I had developed my career to be a, to be a winemaker of, yeah, I can do everything from fixing the tractor to helping shape the wine style for Riesling, which is a wine which hasn't been really made in in Sonoma in years. So, uh, and and discovering uh, how to to do that in a such a way that that we enjoyed the, the the wine itself as it finally came out so just one of those things that comes together but it wasn't by chance it was there um and we had to have the courage um to to make that risk uh, come together i mean it was a little bit scary uh, to get involved with that kind of partnership role um and if you don't take those risks though then it doesn't come together and there's been times during during it was like almost we wish it hadn't come together because it is such a big project and or it's you know another another place to spend time but then then you get the payoff and the reward uh so you know there is that kind of coming full circle it's part of the challenge of equity of ownership right is you actually have to own it Oh. <laughs> but you get to own it. You own something. So, I mean, you, you were a consulting winemaker. You have your own label that you built that you own outright, Helen Sauna. Right. And that, what's, what is that, is, what's the wine label? Is it, is it, is K&A Wines the wine label? K&A Wines is our, is our company name. Um, so that, but then the label itself is Pella for Cabernet and Sauna for Sauvignon Blanc. And we'll do an, an occasional um, Chardonnay named after Jennifer. Her initials uh, JDA. JDA. And where do you get this wine if somebody was interested to try it? I love it, by the way. It's pretty much all direct because we make such a small amount, so it's direct through our website and um, just word of mouth. Uh, we don't have a tasting room, and um, it's just people trying the wine. Room last night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've got an amazing tasting room at, at home. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's people trying it, usually falling in love and and falling following through uh, through the website or calling us and what's the website pellawine.com pellawine p-e-l-l-a dot com or also k-n-a wine um, k-n-a wine dot com yeah. k-n-a wine dot com so you've you've been able to shape a variety of different ways to work in your industry at the same time are there other people that do that I want to say this is very rare. I just want to, I wanted to interject and, and, and make a point for, for people who don't know much about um, the winemaker career. Most winemakers have, they inhabit a very odd position that almost reminds me of the, the artist-patron relationship. So you have often very wealthy people who own wineries, and you are the artist. You're the creative person, and you work for them. And most winemakers work for a winery, and oftentimes the choices that they make are limited or delimited by the owners. It's very, very highly unusual, I think, um, the, the way you make wine, where you're sort of everywhere, everywhere at once but nowhere to be found. Yes, yeah, it's, it's both the way, I mean, which is kind of the approach, and it's also, uh, I have, have some real breadth and depth to, you know, going back to being a viticulturalist and growing you know, I get to be that chef who grows his own ingredients and ferments them into wine. Um, so I th it, it is pretty unique of uh, having as much involvement in the vineyards as I do uh, compared to a lot of my peers who are also winemakers. It tends to be almost, you know, they receive grapes and then they ferment them into wine uh, where, you know, 
by serendipity and also by intent. We're, we're growing vineyards, we're developing vineyards from bare ground, uh, and that's, that's unique and that's where I have only, you know, it's been, it's taken 25 years to be in that position though because when you plant a vineyard, you have to wait seven years before you actually ever first sell that, that first wine from that vintage. So you're, you start, just like your own life, you start, you're starting with a place. There's a personality you're building with these these grapes that you're that you're choosing, whether it's a riesling that's unusual or or other a, a variety of, of, of varietals, or different types of grapes, um, and you're kind of shaping whatever brand you're building. And with that talk about authentic branding, you have a story that starts in the dirt and moves through the vine into the piece of fruit through the fermentation process into probably stainless steel and then oak and then into a bottle is that is that product yeah there's a whole whole range of different details but that's that's the big picture and and when you're shaping a brand I mean am I saying it correctly when, when you're building an authentic brand an authentic you're building this bottle of wine and a, and a name that goes with it and a, and a whole story that goes behind it Jen you obviously have a, obviously a deep background in storytelling Christoph you were in, in college you spent more time doing your art than probably other work you were doing remember your big foot footer well, mixed media um, exhibit where it was all images and pieces and parts from de decayed buildings. When you're building a brand now and you're trying to put all those pieces and parts together, what are you thinking about? How are you building it? What's the story you're trying to tell? Well, you know, you mentioned the sense of place. So to me, when I'm working with a new project, that's part of what I take into account is, is, is it authentic in the sense of both the owner is authentic in what the soil and the terroir is the term we use in the, in the wine industry the terroir which is you know a combination of soil and climate i like to add the other component of the owner so if you have an owner who's trying to make a certain brand that is whatever example you want to say it's you know like they want to make a ferrari um, but they want to make it with parts that belong in a in a VW. That's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So if they give me a piece of soil and they say I want to make amazing Cabernet from this vineyard or this piece of land, which I'm thinking about buying, you know, I think I've probably talked more brands out of not do you know doing a uh, a project than I've worked with actually becoming a brand. So especially since what we're doing as winemakers is so tightly tied to the environment and to, uh, and that's that authentic part. And at the same time, it's uh, kind of surprising to me how many brands come to wine country and try to make something that just doesn't fit. Right. And so that's where, uh, you know, to make a brand in other industries is maybe different than what we do in winemaking, I think it's one of the allures of winemaking, is we are so tightly tied to nature um, that we can't just create something that isn't possible. Uh, uh, that, that you can't grow organically, right? I mean, you're right. When, 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 when you're building, a, so maybe where I'm, what I'm thinking about, and tell me if this is wrong, is I think when, a lot of times when you're building brands, you really, it's less about thinking about the end, and it's more about looking at that journey of, What's the place we're going to do it? What can we actually? What varietals can we grow here that are going to be, that are going to really help us discover the possibility of this of this terroir terroir terroir? I can't. I'm terrible. Terroir. 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 <laughs> um, you know the climate and soil. 
what variety is going to express itself their best, and then how are you going to make wine out of that variety in a way that's going to be unique and different, unconventional, like you've lived your life? Is that? Yeah, that's true, and and part of that commitment to the journey too is you know do the everybody does everybody involved have the financial wherewithal? Do they have the other wherewithal to stick with a, a, a such a long-lived um, project? And I think there's correlations there to all kinds of other things that people want to start and so you have to have reasonable goals that are something that you can sustain and attain so uh, if you want to start your own brand uh, do you have the ability to stick with it for five years or whatever the cliche amount of time is to make a successful business and are you trying to be somebody you're not are you trying to be a, a doctor when actually your skill sets are is somewhere else or you know are you trying to make some amazing furniture but your skills are more uh, apt to to selling selling widgets uh, and I think in a, in a roundabout way I'm trying to say that you know all these things need to be authentic because that's the only way you're gonna stick with it um, and and see it all the way through uh, which is kind of like our our winemaking career here in Napa Valley. Uh, we wouldn't have stuck with it ex for so long, especially when times were hard. Other than we kind of just love it, and it and it does end up being part of our lives. I wanted to to say something. I think there's a level of care that you bring to winemaking that is just that. It comes from love and from your personality I was thinking just now about this story you told me uh, about when you were up high in one of the mountains and there was like this terrible terrible rainstorm I don't know if you remember this and oh, yeah, during harvest during harvest and um, there's another winemaker who is also picking from the same area man he was in bed right this is v very early in the morning and I don't know if I'm telling the story right but you spent a lot of time tying tarps to the bins of grapes on the truck to make sure that rain wouldn't get in um, because when the fruit is crushed that water would then end up diluting the juice in which case you'd have some fermentation issues and problems and some winemakers might have to add sugar which you're not allowed to do um, so you you were like climbing up there in the driving rain tying on the tarp Am I getting this right? Yeah, you're right. And the vineyard crew was looking at me just like, this guy is crazy. And it was an almost crazy level of, like you said, attention to detail. or of, uh, But then that ended up kind of saving that batch of wine. The other load of grapes, exact same scenario, but the winemaker was asleep, and he never knew that his bins of grapes arrived with uh, four inches of rainwater. And you know, I'm sure his wine turned out fine, but it wasn't nearly as good as what ours did. And and but yeah, I mean, I lost. I remember four hours of my day that day tying down tarps, and it's like, why am I, as the winemaker, the one who's driving to Home Depot and getting these uh, tarps? It's like like you say thank you for the compliment it's that attention to detail which just comes naturally when you're doing something that you're passionate about and I think that's kind of going back to what you were proposing David of you know if you're going to start one of your own careers if you're going to start your own brand if you're going to start anything in life a family um, etc you know you got to be incredibly passionate about it to actually see it through uh, going back to something we 
were chatting about earlier on of you know how I originally wanted to be a doctor, I could do that career. Um, I didn't quite have the passion though I realized to actually see it through. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to be a doctor was because a family friend was a, a cardiologist and he had three Ferraris and I was like, man, I want that lifestyle. Um, but I realized, oh, you know, there's a difference between wanting a lifestyle and seeing something out there and be like, oh, that's what I want to do. But then also having the passion to follow it through and see it through. Man, I think you're crazy half the time too. The stuff you do is 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 just like nuts but it's like in a in a cool way like during the the napa fires we just went through and we had to leave our home and we were living temporarily at the at the winery in oakville um it was scary you'd look up and see the fires burning on both sides of the valley and the, the air was thick with smoke and this is a time when when you decide to do this whole new experimental project of boiling down quince apples and but it was to make balsamic vinegar and must I mean, to else? make balsamic vinegar in the traditional manner. And it was so much fun. <laughs> While the fires are raging. While the While fires, the fires are, are raging. raging. Did you have cell service at that point? Was, uh, was your cell we, phone out? We did very limited. You know, everything was very limited. And one of the, almost one of the reasons I did it was because I was just like, this is the absolute wrong time to do some crazy project. Uh, but I'm just going to stick with it and just get it done. Uh, and the other weird part about it was part of bo- uh, part of boiling down that quince and grape juice was was lighting another fire underneath this pot. Like, how could I be lighting a fire? You know, starting a you could have during, during, fire. during a fire. It's just, it's, everything about it felt so wrong. Even you know, including you looking at me cross-eyed. Like, how could you be starting? You've this got now? the propane thing, and it's going like for was it seventy-two hours? You're yeah, just yeah, leaving was... that thing burning. <laughs> Yep, yeah. leaving, a, leaving a propane tank burning in the middle of a, of a forest fire was a little bit crazy. What's the worst thing that could happen? You could start a fire. Exactly. <laughs> I could blow myself up. But it is amazing balsamic vinegar, I think, although we won't really know for another 10 years because that's how long it takes to get that product to its final wow. version. The time is, uh, is a big component of your yeah. work. Yes. But let me um, maybe we'll wrap this up. You both come from traditional Christian upbringings. We went to a a very conservative Christian college together. Um, where are you in your faith journey, if you don't mind me asking? When we were starting out here in the Napa Valley, you had shifted to uh, a Russian Orthodox church. You actually lived in Calistoga at a Russian Orthodox church. The Napa Valley is very expensive, and sometimes when we were younger, we were looking for innovative ways to live in this valley because it wasn't certainly wasn't ever cheap. Um, so you guys have had a pretty interesting journey. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about that journey, where you are today, and um, how does that shape your work and the choices you make in your career path? He's pointing towards me. That's maybe because this is I'll a, let you start on that one. A, a conversation that we, we maybe haven't had ourselves lately, and we might even have divergent views. I'm not sure. I think that um, I would say that I changed a lot of my thinking about traditional uh, organized religion when I had my children, when I gave birth, I had a home birth, and um, I found it to be an empowering uh, experience, and I began to question some of the ideas that you see in Genesis and the Bible and so forth, and it was a beginning of a real intellectual period of growth. I read about spiral dynamics. I read a lot about um, science and spirit and the idea that maybe 
the God force that you uh, worship is evolution itself, the evolutionary edge. Or, or um, I'd read about quantum physics, and I think could it be, um, could it be just pure energy intelligence of the universe? I guess my point is that personally, I've become increasingly abstract, and I've maybe transcended um, the the need to go to an organized. Uh, Church. In the first episode, I talked a little bit about you know that I think religion. There are people have different opinions. I travel over the world. I mean, I work with people from all different faith traditions, and um, you know, I, to me, it seems like people have some unique experience with the metaphysic, right? With with something beyond themselves, beyond the physical universe, and they try and construct, uh, you know, and create this way for other people to experience that, and that construct becomes what we call religion. It's not actually the thing itself. There's a thing behind it somehow. Um, and that's not always easy for people to understand if you're right in the middle of growing up in the thing that you were born into because you don't see it because you can't see it. It's like a fish seeing water. If you're always in it. How do you experience something else? Exactly. Are, are you feeling, is that my kind of summarizing some of what you're saying there? Absolutely. So for me, for whatever strange reason, <laughs> birth and motherhood and um, thinking about whether my my infants were in fact um, uh, inhabiting a world of original sin. This, that, that was the shock moment that made me stop and uh, start, start to question that thinking that I'd been born into. Yeah, and I, I would add too, I think, you know, there's even the concept of something called original sin, that, that all humanity is tainted by sin or by this evil force. Um, you know, I think how you define that also de depends, you know, there's a lot of definitions of that. Um, I hear people, I, I hear criticisms of original sin, um, and the version that's being criticized, I would totally criticize as well. And then there's versions that, that I grew up with as examples, like, you know, Dutch Christian Reformed Calvinist. Um, I'm not in that faith tradition anymore, but the, the version that I grew up with was actually, for, for me anyways, made sense. Like when I see evil things happening in the world, you know, we were just listening to a podcast about how the Japanese, um, as a culture, for the first part of their you know, uh, civilization, were fighting exterior forces. And they did a good job of ending that. Then all of a sudden, they're fighting themselves internally. And I said to Sarah, we were riding the car yesterday, I said, you know, it sounds like people. Like, if we're not fighting somebody else, we'll fight ourselves, you know. Uh, we were talking about somebody, a friend this morning who was going through some stuff. And I said, you know, it never helps us to sit alone too, too, too much time in our heads because... We'll, we'll even, we'll even you know, battle ourselves if we're left alone too long. But at the same time, you know, I, I think I, I also agree that I don't think people, if they were created by a god, as we think about those things, I don't think they were created with that evil. I think, you know, there's some kind of a taint that happened. Anyways, I don't want to get into a, a, an argument about original sin or discussion too deep on it. But, but I think to your point, you were saying, wait a minute, whatever I was told about original sin doesn't seem to match what I'm experiencing with my children. Is that, is that more That's accurate? right. And I guess I would say I was looking for more complexity and I'm more tolerant now yeah. of ambiguity. Right. And I don't need things to be pinned down in black and white. Put in a box like that. And I, I think that's part of the danger of like the constructs you're talking about uh, perhaps of you know different religions having different constructs. That was always when I was a kid growing up in the Christian church really alienated me of like well what do you mean uh, an aboriginal or a native person in South America or wherever else in the world 
can't be saved and go to heaven because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. I'm like, well, how can that even be fair? I mean, how is that possible? And so, you know, I think, but the, you know, ex various religions will uh, put their construct on the faith system such that it alienates a certain segment. And um, that's when I was rebelling against Christianity in, in whatever my teenage years, um, even even at Wheaton. Um, uh, it was when I was at Wheaton is when we were introduced to Eastern Orthodoxy, and that's why we decided to become Eastern Orthodox was to me, or one of the reasons for me personally was it kind of embraced a, a, a mystical side of, of things that was less authoritarian and less didactic than a lot of the other Christian faiths that we have. And I think that speaks a little bit to what Jennifer is saying of, you know, her experience as a motherhood in motherhood and her experience with having kids. Um, it's also my experience with having kids uh, and, and just maturing and getting older is I'm so much less literal in the interpretation of the Bible or, or the interpretation of different constructs. Um, to me, it just seems like a lot of those things have been added on often by men uh, to make uh, people obey. And uh, so why isn't it more just about love? And is that really what Jesus was preaching was more just about love? And, you know, I think different versions of Christianity have added too many different weird, weird layers. And then you could, or however you want to define them, biases, yeah. biases and weirds, maybe the wrong term. And then you can go, you know, to the extreme then of, you know, how do some Christian faiths become essentially a cult? And then, you know, so what is the definition of how, how did that difference happen? And I've become much more, you know, not a universalist. I like being within the Christian um, spirit. I am. Um, but for sure, that I don't believe that you have to be a Christian to be saved. And I don't think that being Christian makes you a better person. But um, having that faith construct for me gives me a little bit more structure um, to be able to then go into more spiritual places in my mind and in my life. Um, and, uh, and that's where Eastern Orthodoxy especially embraces that, that the myths and the, the, the not the knowing. Uh, and that's where it's different than uh, the Catholic Church, um, which then had a lot of different faiths that rebelled against the Catholic Church because the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't have one pope. There isn't one person making all these decisions. And it's more of a you know a group of seven bishops essentially way back when of uh, you know let's focus on the more important things and not so much uh, you know are you can you possibly be saved even though you're gay or you know whatever. <laughs> There's mysterious questions yes. and uh, trying to find answers sometimes can be tricky. When you're making wine, is there mystery that you're dealing with that kind of mirrors the the mystery in the universe that you're dealing with on a metaphysical level? Uh, you know, I f my sense of that is just learning to give up a little bit. So I tend to not worry uh, about being saved uh, if I don't do something right or, you know, something's wrong. And I don't worry so much about the winemaking process. Um, I th think it's just wisdom from age of knowing that you can't control and as a control kind of person, I would like to try and control it. Uh, and I've just had to learn that no matter how much I fight it, I can't control it. So you don't give up, um, but it's just, uh, you know, 
a, a, a sense of Zen that I'm prepared. Uh, I've done my studying. I've done my work. I've done the very best job I can, uh, and I'm just going to let this thing launch. And I think some of that uh, is also being a father and being a parent of you know I no matter how much I want to control those kids, they're going to be their own. And I'm just going to launch them, but I'm going to arm them. And, um, you know, we, and that's where we've decided to live our family lives the way we have is, you know, Jennifer sacrificed her career so she can be a stay at home mom. Um, luckily, you know, she hasn't had to totally sacrifice it because now she's getting to get back into more of her own writing and, and relaunch that component of her life as well. But, you know, it's like kids. It's it's like religion. It's like winemaking. It's like anything that's truly organic. It's maybe like you know starting your own brand. Even of you do everything you possibly can to be prepared, but then you just let go to the extent that you have to. But it's not letting go to the extent that you just don't care anymore. It seems like you've both created ecosystems. I mean, you've done it together for writing, right? You the background in school and then you put yourself into this police work and then you let, us, let stories take shape that you captured and, and made more elegant in, in the written word. Um, Christoph, you do this in winemaking where you start with the land and then you figure out the varietals and then you know you shape wine out of, but out of, out of that environment that you create, that ecosystem you create, and, and you've done this with children. Um, you created a home and a place where you can have you know the, the con, kind of the process or the convention is unconventionality in a way. Um, they're structured. I know you guys have a structured home environment, but you have enough enough. Uh, I guess a lack of convention or control where the kids. I think your kids feel pretty free to, for example, dye their hair blue or do graffiti in the backyard to make things to create to test to try. Um, is that maybe is that part of your process that you? you learn to kind of embrace the mystery because you created an ecosystem or environment where you can let things happen and, and shape what comes out? I think so. I think that's a, a beautiful way of putting it. I sometimes think Christoph doesn't know why he makes good wine or how he makes good wine. People will ask him that question, and I can tell you he's a world-class winemaker who makes some of the best wines in the world. I don't know if you know how. I watch you do it analytically and intuitively. I watch you with your spreadsheets that, that take three computer screens <laughs> to view. Um, there's that side of your personality, but then there's that touch you have and that love for nature and that, that, um, that joy you take in the sensory beauty of things. And I think we have found parenting to be this challenge in which our children teach us and stretch us and cause us to grow in unexpected ways, in ways that you would never imagine. And we've had to evolve along the way. And I think, I think that that's the point. That's the, um, the both ordinary and extraordinary adventure and journey that every single person is supposed to take. Uh, you, you try your best and you struggle and you don't feel control and you end up in a place you never you never maybe imagined but we do create this ecosystem of love in our home and you choose your 
your vineyards, your ecosystem with great care. And I think your wines somehow, they somehow reflect, I think, that love, that touch. Thank you. I, I think, Jen, your writing is reflective of that as well. I think you guys express that throughout your, your world. And, uh, and it's part of the reason I wanted to, when we were here, I wanted to try and grab you and, and do an interview with you because I think you exhibit uh, what living successfully is really all about. It's not about the money or the things. It's about creating a life that, to your point, Janet, you know, maybe you end up in an exotic place you might not have planned, and the journey was longer, Christoph, right, than we talked about, then you might have, if you could do it all over, you might have shortened a couple steps. Right. <laughs> but I think you guys have ended up in this place, from, from us watching your life from the outside, maybe, maybe you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't change where you are. Um, well, thank, thank, you, David. You, thank it, you, David. Thank you, David. That seems like that. That's a, a great compliment from um, from a, a friend of many decades. Um, it means a lot, and I, I think that you're right. I was surprised that you wanted to talk with us initially because we're not fabulously wealthy, and we're not celebrities. We're just sort of, you know, every man and every woman out there. But we do live. Um, I think we we. We try to live beautiful lives and meaningful lives and authentic lives. And, you know, one of the, in an earlier podcast, I talked about the fact that nobody's average. Um, average is actually a, a useful tool when you're trying to create a mean to understand something, but it doesn't define each of the data points. The data points are all anomalies, they're all unique. Um, the reason I want to talk to you guys is because I think you've created this unique, exotic, beautiful ecosystem, this world that you inhabit. And I wanted to uh, see if we can capture that and capture your process and talk about it. And um, I think to that end, we've had a lot of success today. Thank you very, very much for making time. I know you have busy lives. Thank you for hosting us last night. And Our I can't pleasure. wait to see you again this evening. Our pleasure. Thanks we look so much. forward to it. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure talking with you. Awesome. Well, this, uh, this is another Kick Aspirational podcast. Uh, this is interactive. Uh, we just heard uh, a great long interview with Christoph and Jen that uh, is intentionally long because I think for any of us to dig into a world we create, um, it takes time and it takes thought and it takes probing. And I'm very, very happy with the time we've had together. I would love to hear your questions, your comments. Um, you know, give us feedback. Tell us what, what where you're struggling to create the world you want to live in and, um, and maybe where you've had success. And uh, let's all learn together. Thank you very much. Let's be kick aspirational.